0: Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Real estate investing is a team sport. You need people to find the deals, raise money, structure the financing, fund risk capital, guarantee the loans, and more. Joel Fine of Lakeline Properties has been a limited partner in over 30 deals and is also a general partner in several deals where he plays critical roles in the acquisition phase of multifamily. Joel is also involved in land and ground-up development deals. So today we have with us another successful real estate gentleman who I've been so looking forward to speaking to because uh, among other things, being a GP on his own in multifamily and land, he also is a, is a limited partner in a lot of real estate too. So he's got a, a very, very broad perspective. He happens to have a master's in electrical engineering from Stanford, which means uh, you know I, I am Right out of the gate, just completely outmatched here. Today we have with us Joel Fine of Lakeline Properties, I should say. Joel, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Thank you so much, Roger. Really appreciate uh the opportunity to talk to your audience.
0: You got it. And uh, so Joel, tell me, so I I know you You definitely spent some time in, in Silicon Valley based on what I read about you. I'm, I'm a little bit up the road here in near Oakland. And uh, so tell me, are you a Bay Area guy originally? Are you from somewhere else? Where did you grow up? So going
1: all the way back, I was born in New York, uh, New York City, but my folks moved to Tucson, Arizona when I was a baby. So I grew up in Tucson. I consider myself kind of a Tucson native. Went through to, through high school in Tucson, and then, as you mentioned, I got a, a degree from Stanford. I actually got my bachelor's and master's degree from Stanford. So that's where I went after Tucson is to the Bay Area and uh, worked in high tech for a long time after that. So I stayed in the in Silicon Valley, you know, basically for the jobs. That's that's where that's where you went if you were in the field that I was in in computer design and software and so forth. So. But uh, but I did spend a long time in California in the Bay Area, right from college until about two years ago when I moved to Texas. So probably about 30, 30 plus years in California.
0: Interesting that you moved, you know, after all this time as a adult with grown kids, but real quick question. So, way back in the day, your, your folks moved from New York City to Tucson, uh, which is interesting back then because, like, I think, like, 10 people lived there back then, no, no offense. Why Tucson?
1: Yeah, it was a pretty small community then. So, my dad went to med school um, in Boston, did his residency in New York City. And then immediately following his his training, he signed up with the Air Force, and he thought he'd go to Tucson for just a couple year jaunt. He signed up for a two year stint, said, "Hey, this'll be fun. I'll, you know, Tucson's kind of this uh, cool resort place. I'll I'll be there for a couple years, and then I'll come back to my roots. I'll be back in Boston." And uh, after uh, a year in Tucson, he said, uh, "Forget it. I'm never going back. I I can't face another Boston winter." And uh, So they stayed in Tucson and they've actually been there ever since. They've lived in Tucson now for more than 50 years. Um, But that's that's how we ended up there is the Air Force put my dad
0: there. Wow. Well, you know, it, along the lines of multifamily, anyway, Tucson is is doing extremely well and has really turned into a market. So here's my question: It's so interesting. So you moved a couple years ago out of the Bay Area, and was that for uh, business reasons in terms of what you're doing in in real estate, or? It was kind of
1: a mix of business and
0: personal. When I first got to California,
1: it was a very different state than it is now. At the time, it was very entrepreneurial, very open, uh, very business friendly, and it was just a great place to do business, to be either employed or employer. And that has changed pretty dramatically over the years, especially accelerating, I'd say say over the last five to 10 years. It's become obviously a very expensive place to do business, but besides that, it's a very hostile place to do business. Uh, Very high taxes, Lot of regulations just general unfriendliness towards business and profit also very unfriendly towards landlords difficult to place to manage properties and deal with tenants and I just had no interest in, in doing any of that of I, I, I kind of you know over time I got more and more frustrated with the California environment uh, beautiful weather um, you know great cuisine but otherwise a very difficult place to be and, and to do business so I, I told my wife I'd, I'd be happy moving outside of California, just about anywhere in the U.S. that doesn't get real winter. That was my constraint. So she she actually settled on Austin, and I was fine with that. She she liked Austin for the high-tech vibe, uh, for the cosmopolitan community, for the you know just the, the the general attitude of the place, and I was okay with that. I, I, Texas was one of the places I had my eye on for a long time. You know, I think Texas is now replaced California largely as the, a destination for people who want to be entrepreneurial, to want to start things up and uh,
0: try new ideas. And so it's a really exciting, fun place to be. Very interesting. You know, we are, uh, we meaning my wife and I are kind of... Um in those same conversations our younger son is about ready to go to college in the fall and so we're having the same conversations for a lot of the same reasons the same and, and more reasons so you know there are two million more people in the bay area today than when i first moved out to uh... california and it's just like you know you talk about just um, you know it's I, I forget the word you used it wasn't hostile, but something along those lines, you know, to, to it actually it is said to landlords and it's high taxes and hostile to business. And to me, it's just like hostile period. So uh, compared to what it was, and, and I don't know if that's just because I'm getting older, if it's because it's gotten more crowded or both, but I hear you loud and clear. And would you say, looking back, Uh, last couple years. Are you happy with the move? Is there anything you miss about California? Just out of curiosity.
1: Well, I miss the weather for sure. You know, the Bay Area weather just can't be beat. It's essentially nine months of spring and then a couple months of kind of rain and and chilly. But other than the weather, there's really not a lot I miss. I'm really glad that I moved. Um, One of the the big things that happened for us when we moved is we got a major lifestyle upgrade. This was before the big boom in austin home prices we were able to buy about three times the house that we were in for half the price the ratios aren't quite that good anymore but they're still very good you can definitely live better on a similar amount of money in austin in texas than you can in the bay area and even if you're a w2 employee you know a lot of companies will pay a little bit less in texas than in california but that differential is nowhere near the differential in just in terms of the uh, cost of living. And so I think in general people can have a better lifestyle uh, better better standard of living in Texas on a on a given in a given career track or a given salary than they can in California. So that's a big part of why I'm happy, but even more importantly I'm just I'm really pleased to be in an environment that I feel is uh, thriving and entrepreneurial and forward-looking and i just don't think the california is that way anymore uh, but texas it pretty much is
0: well it's interesting because uh it'll be it'll be interesting to see if the pendulum swings in back in the other direction at some point i think it you know at some point i think it will you know there's going to be a breaking point cuz people can only be willing to you know, pay taxes to a certain point, and uh, you know the outmigration is going to eventually speak for itself. Um, I, I have
1: right. I mean, I, I don't wish California ill. I hope that you know it changes its ways and, and becomes a little bit more like it used to be in terms of its um, environment for business and, and entrepreneurs. I just, I think that's a that's a difficult lift because the people they're they're driving out of the state now are the people that they need to make that transition that transition back happen.
0: So uh, we, we shall see. I think eventually, it's just a matter of when, so I have a side question. There was something I read about you that I've, I actually find really interesting, uh, and it brought a smile to my face. Just because I've tried a number of entrepreneurial things, failed at the lion's share of them, uh, but have had some success in between. But you bought a precision tune, and the reason I that brought a smile to my face from a guy that's you know uh, electrical engineers is that you know I've done things like that, and I was just curious to know, and, and that's something I would have done. Why, why did you do it, and did you did you think that you would end up owning several of them, or what was the experience like, and why did you do it, and all that stuff?
1: Yeah, so this was back in 2003. I had been laid off from a, a corporate job, and I wanted to do something very different. I'd been I, I got burned out working you know eighty hour weeks at something that eventually really didn't pan out, and so uh, buying the business that I bought was to scratch an entrepreneurial itch that I had to be my own boss, to run my own show. So 2003, you know, what is that, almost 20 years ago now. And uh, I'd say it was, a, it was a fantastic learning experience in the sense that running one's own small business, it, it, gives, it gave me a chance to learn all kinds of things about business. As a small business owner, I was HR, I was payroll, I was uh, all of the administration, bookkeeping, accounting, every hat I got to wear other than, you know, Precision Tune is a, a car repair shop. I wasn't on the cars. I wasn't in, in the garage, uh, but I was doing everything else. And so that was a great learning experience. However, one of the things I learned was that it's, it's very difficult to be a small business owner, and it's especially difficult to be a small business owner in Silicon Valley. And even even back then, when you might say the place was a little less unfriendly to business, it was still a very difficult place to do business. Really tough to uh, make decisions about employees. Very strong employment protection laws that make it difficult to structure the workday in the way you might want, or make decisions about hiring and firing people. Just a lot of a lot of challenges in doing business there. And um, so, from a business perspective, the you know experience didn't go well. It wasn't profitable, but it was a great learning experience.
0: Got it. Well. Yeah, that's, uh, I've been there. So what uh, what led you into
1: real estate? So kind of a funny story for that. Um, when my wife and I first decided that we intended to move to Austin, this was at least a year to two to three years before we thought we could actually do that. We knew that uh, you know we wanted, we wanted to get our kids through high school. We wanted to sort of settle things down in, in California, figure out when we could transition our careers since we were both in high tech at the time, And we just felt like, okay, we're probably three to five years away from making this move, but we know we want to make this move. And so in order to enable that, we decided to invest in real estate here in Austin as a way to sort of plant a flag. It was a hedge to protect us against the possibility, for example, that if uh, real estate prices crashed in the Bay Area or blew up in Austin, we would be somewhat protected in that we would have a place that we could go to or an investment that would pay off that would enable us to buy a place we could go to. So it was, it was sort of our, our insurance policy, um, our, our way to plant a flag in Austin way in advance of when we thought we could move. When I bought that house, um, I learned a, a number of things about real estate and about the Texas market. Uh, one of the things I learned, it really destroyed one of my limiting beliefs about real estate. Um, in, in California, in the Bay Area, nothing cash flows. If you look at the numbers on pretty much anything you might wanna buy, you're really counting on appreciation. Uh, the rent that you can collect from, uh, let's say a, a single family house or a duplex is not going to pay the bills. It's not going to pay your mortgage plus uh, taxes and insurance and so forth. And, and so the only way you can invest in real estate and make money in the Bay Area is if there's appreciation. Now, in hindsight, the appreciation has been phenomenal. And so I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I was dead wrong about that. But at the time I said, I, I don't want to count on appreciation. And so real estate just isn't for me. And I, I made the assumption that, hey, I'm looking around in California, in the Bay Area, there's no cash flow, it's all appreciation. That must be how real estate is. So I'm not interested. I'll keep putting my money into the stock market. But well, when we bought the house in Austin, it was actually in Round Rock, a suburb of Austin, I learned that not all markets are like California's. And in fact, you can cash flow on, on real estate. You know, I learned all kinds of things about uh, how to calculate that, the 1% rule, um, you know, how to calculate the ratios, um, how to look at uh, how to refinance and, and uh, leverage up and so forth. So once I bought that house, uh, that was basically like a, I almost call it my gateway drug to real estate. Uh, bought that one and, and started investigating other markets, decided I was going to invest more in cash flowing assets. Looked around for where's the best cash flow of all. Is, it, is there other places even better than Austin for even more cash flow? Uh, found the Cleveland market, bought some stuff in Cleveland, mostly small things—duplexes, triplexes, and quads. Then, at the time, I was learning about uh, syndication. At the same time, I was investing in these other small things. When, as I learned about syndication, that helped to knock down one of my other limiting beliefs, which was, "Hey, whatever I'm going to do in, in real estate, I, I have to do on my own." So if I'm going to buy an asset, I personally have to come up with a down payment. And of course the bank will come in with debt, but whatever that down payment is, I've got to be able to write that check if I'm going to buy something. And so that was a fundamental limiting belief that you know, I discovered, hey, that's, that's just not at all true. And syndication is one of the best models to uh, demolish that limiting belief. And so I, I learned as much as I could about syndication, uh, read books, went to meetups, uh, met people, talked to syndicators, invested in, in several syndications myself as a passive investor, uh, just to uh, absorb as much as I could about that business model, about how that operated and how it worked. Um, and over time, it didn't take long. I figured out, hey, the, the way forward really is to, to pursue syndication. That's a, a better way to leverage up, to scale up, uh, to have a more profound impact and so I shifted my focus over time from the small things I was buying in, in Ohio uh, to learning how to do syndications. Uh, ultimately, I invested, I think, in at least a dozen syndications as a passive before I did my own first deal as, a, as an active sponsor. And uh, ever since then, it's been off to the races. I've done, I think, eight deals now as a sponsor. I'm in a total of a, something like 30 deals as a limited partner. Um, And uh, the momentum isn't slowing. I'm I'm, uh, working on about three more deals in parallel right now. So, um, you know, just uh, full, full speed ahead
0: now. Impressive, very impressive. When were you doing these? by, by the way, little, little little trivia: I am from Cleveland, so I'm kind of smiling there. When when did you buy those, and how how did you deal with management? And I have a feeling they weren't in Shaker Heights, which is kind of like would be the the Palo Alto of Cleveland, if there is such a thing, which there isn't. But you get my point. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and, therefore, can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did.
1: Funny you mentioned Shaker Heights. I actually, I did have two assets in Shaker Heights. Ah. I sold most of my portfolio in Cleveland, but I, I still have one of the two assets in Shaker Heights. Um, and yeah, you're, you're right. That's, it is sort of a, one of the higher-end areas of, of Cleveland. Sorry, remind me, what was the question you asked?
0: How how did you deal with the management of those? Oh, the management, yeah.
1: So so that's, um, I was aiming for a relatively passive experience. It works out that when you buy things like duplexes and triplexes and hire a third-party property manager, which is what I do, you end up in what I call semi-passive real estate investing. And what I mean by that is most of the day-to-day grunt work is done by somebody else that you hire. And like I said, I I hired a third party property manager to take care of the properties, but they were still a fairly significant um, time commitment on my part in the sense that I had to make a lot of decisions on a pretty regular basis, you know, deciding about uh, repairs and bids on renovations, uh, what to do about tenants who were delinquent, um, just an, an ongoing series of challenges that, You know, nothing was overwhelming, but it was definitely a a time commitment that's very different from the experience you get as a passive investor in a syndication. So, like I said, the third-party property manager that I hired handled the day-to-day, but um, nobody takes care of the property the way you would take care of the property. So I was always double-checking their work and, um, you know, asking for more information from them about what they were doing in response to different things. Uh, Cleveland in particular is a fairly harsh environment. The winters are brutal and the properties are very old, at least the ones that I bought. And so that combination of of challenging climate and old properties means that there's a lot of ongoing repairs, Uh, constant leaks in roofs. Uh, You know, trees are either tearing gutters down or roots are uh, encroaching in, in pipes. Flooring needs to be replaced, leaks into basements, just all kinds of stuff. And, you know, every time a a major repair would come up, I'd have to get involved. And I I didn't mind that. Um, But again, as I learned about syndication um, and as I learned what it's like to be a a sponsor in a syndicated deal, I realized the time commitment it would take for me to run, say, a 200-unit property is not really very different from the time it takes me to run a duplex. And you can guess which one makes me more money and has a bigger impact. So it was pretty clear that you know, going going bigger, scaling up was a much better way to do. It was a, it was a much better way to leverage my time, my money, my investment, uh, and the investments of other people who would entrust me with their money.
0: Yeah, a 10 cap in Cleveland doesn't really end up being a 10 cap. Uh, I have learned the hard way. Uh, when did you buy those properties in Cleveland?
1: Uh, I think it was around 2018,
0: 2019. Oh, so this is, this is not that long ago. This is very recent. Wow, okay. Yeah, it
1: wasn't that long ago that I I, I jumped uh, both feet in very quickly into the real estate world.
0: Yeah, you, you sure did. Wow. Okay, and then on the LP side of things, how did you find sponsors and how has your experience been? Uh and, and I guess when did you start around the same time? So those are like three different questions. Yeah. So on the LP side,
1: um first deal I participated in uh I was attending meetups. This was back when I was living in California and going to meetups on commercial real estate investing. Actually I'm not even sure if it was focused on commercial, it was all kinds of real estate investing, but the guys who hosted the meetup, it was a, a team of four engineers who were actively sponsoring deals in Dallas. So they were hosting a meetup in San Jose on a monthly basis, but but sponsoring deals in Dallas. And so they would present on various topics around real estate, uh, all kinds of things from, you know, how to secure debt to raising capital to how to uh, conserve water on the property, things like that. So um, I got to know them a little bit uh, of course, while they were hosting their meetups, they were sharing the fact that they were um, sponsoring these deals. And so I figured, OK, let, let me invest something in one of their deals. Worst case, maybe I won't make much money. I could even lose a little bit of money, but I'll learn a ton. And I talked to them and, and got them to allow me to dial into their weekly calls with their property manager just so I could learn. And so I did that. I, I invested with them. And I dialed in once a week. And I would just go on mute for an hour and listen to them, and I would hear, you know, what sort of challenges they were having, what sort of problems coming up, and how they would deal with them. How they would work with their property manager to figure out what are they going to do about the delinquencies, about evictions, about repairs, renovations, staff turnover, whatever. And as I listened, number one, it was it was great learning. I learned a lot about the business, but kind of the meta learning was hey, this isn't that difficult. I've got a lot of the skills already to do this. I was a program manager in my high-tech job and a lot of the skills required to be asset manager, um, which is what, a, what a, a sponsor does to manage the asset, to make decisions about uh, the pace of renovations, where to take rents and so forth while the property manager does the day-to-day. A lot of that work is very similar in skills and really not not complicated, not rocket science, And so it gave me the confidence to say, all right, if I can learn a little more about the business, if I can get to know the people in the business, I can do this. So I decided to get deeper into it. This was, you know, I I was taking it step by step. So I found somebody who uh, was looking to uh, help people grow into a, a, a sponsor role by getting them a little deeper into their syndications, This was somebody in Houston. So I did a couple of deals with him uh, got, got a little deeper into his deals, uh, signed on a couple of his loans as a way to participate more uh, more in, intimately in, in his deals. Eventually, I helped raise capital for one of his deals. Uh, didn't raise much capital, honestly, and it was just learning how to do that and also getting my uh, my friends and family used to the idea that I was in the business and raising capital. And so that first deal was sort of a trial run. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of investors, when they see a, somebody sponsoring their first deal, they'll kick the tires, they'll look at it, they'll make um, approving noises, encouraging noises, but they won't actually invest. They'll say, hey, let me see how this first one goes, come back to me with a second one and we'll, we'll talk. So that's kind of how it worked for me. So that first deal that I did as a, as a sponsor and a capital raiser, I really didn't do much. Um, you know, I helped a little bit with the due diligence, uh, helped with the underwriting, but uh, really, the, the, the guy who was running the syndication, who was much more seasoned than I was on the syndication side, was side was was running the deal and doing all the work, and I was just helping and participating. But, but that was a good resume builder, another good confidence builder, and that helped open the pave the, the way for my next deal, where I got much more involved, much more of a leadership role, um, and helped to drive that deal.
0: And so, um, so you were a KP on that deal
1: yeah I, I was KP on I think two or three deals by the time I did my first sponsored deal.
0: And like how in some that deal in Houston, how big of a deal was it? how many units, all that kind of stuff
1: uh, let's see it was 196 units. I'm trying to remember how many or what the I think the purchase price was about 15 million. so it was about 75 a door uh, and this was in a C neighborhood in Houston. Uh, fairly standard kind of uh, value add play. I think it was like a 1975 build and uh, just hadn't been updated in a long time. So we went in and and, uh, did a full cosmetic renovation, uh, floors, paint, countertops, cabinets, new lighting and plumbing fixtures. Yeah, that's a fairly standard value-add proposition uh, business plan. And it's worked well. I think the property may be going on the market soon or may already be on the market. I'm not sure. But anyway, that was that was my first KP deal. And yeah, like I said, I did a couple more after that and then
0: started sponsoring my own deals. What what year was that, that one particular deal, just to get a sense? Uh, that
1: was in 2019, about three oh. years ago.
0: Okay. And then as a KP, uh, you sign and guarantee the loan. What do you get in equity for that?
1: So on that first one, I think I
0: got a very small
1: uh, fee for that, I got a little part of the acquisition fee. Uh, in most of the deals I've done since then, it works out to roughly five to 10% of the equity for the KP. And a lot of deals have multiple KP's to get, um, I, I'm sure you know, maybe your audience doesn't know that when you get commercial debt on a multifamily property, the bank wants to see the net worth of the collection of people signing on the loan to be greater than the, the value of the loan. So if the loan's 10 million bucks. They want to see that the signers of the loan, if you add up all their net worths, is, is ten million or more. And so, oftentimes, you'll get you know one KP with three million net worth, another with five million, and you get enough KPs that it adds up to uh, the amount that the bank wants to see. And so, typically, what I see is roughly five to ten percent of a deal is set aside for that, and it's spread across however many people sign on the loan.
0: When you, you say five to ten percent of the equity,
1: of the of the GP split
0: right exactly okay very interesting and I'm assuming by the way that this net worth is does not include people single their, their primary residences is that correct uh,
1: no that's not correct actually I, I think you're you may be thinking of the calculation for accreditation status which is different
0: Oh so it does include uh, this I did not know uh, so it does include single family that's very interesting um, yeah. Yeah. You know what's so interesting in talking to you, uh, Joel, especially kind of coming, you know, you're an employee, uh, you're an engineer, is you are a, and you may not view it this way, which, you know, is neither here nor there, but you are not afraid, man. You you go out there and, and you make stuff happen, man. You don't wait around and, and do nothing. You take action. So, I mean, it's like, wow, to, to KP on something like that, uh, you know, with a guy, a super assuming you you didn't know that long and you know good for you man that's super impressive uh, on the lp side just out of curiosity because you you're in you know a, a number a, a large number of doors how many different i guess you say what's 12 sponsors you even different sponsors you invested with uh
1: let's see so on the you're talking strictly on the kp side no on the lp side on the lp side let's see so i'm i'm in about like i said about 30 deals i'd say no, no sponsor has more than about three or four on that list. So it's got to be at least a dozen, might be more like 20.
0: Got it. And, and how would you describe the spectrum of your experience, good to bad, and what makes good and what makes bad, et cetera, in, D, in, in all these sponsors, whether it be reporting, whether it be results, communication, et cetera?
1: Yeah. So I'd say a couple of things really differentiate one sponsor from another. One is uh, underwriting the assumptions that a sponsor makes as they're underwriting a deal can have a profound effect on the success or failure of a deal. And uh, it it can have what seems like outsize effects on the outcome. What I mean by that is, uh, for example, one of the things you do when you're underwriting a deal is you make an assumption about how quickly rents will grow organically in the, in the area in which you're buying. And that the, range of growth of rent can be pretty wide you can make assumptions that hey uh, my rent i'm I'm in a great neighborhood rent's going to grow five six percent a year that's on the high end on the low end you might say i want to be more conservative i'm going to assume it's more like two or three percent a year and that difference between the two or three percent rent growth and the five or six percent rent growth that may not sound like much but that can have a really big impact on the ultimate result that you project on a property so if you want to get aggressive and you want your your results to look really good. Looking forward, you you know you claim that you can get rents up five to six percent, and that's on top of whatever you get for renovating and improving the property. Uh, but if you want to be more conservative, then you you know you put a smaller number there. And so, uh, one of the things that differentiates sponsors is what kind of numbers they put in those assumptions. And there's a, there's a long list of of those assumptions. It's you know what what are the vacancy rates? How much delinquency and lost a lease and other uh, things that might happen that uh, prevent you from collecting the maximum possible rent. Uh, what are the cap rates going to look like when you sell? You know, there's a bunch of parameters that you can play with in a, in a spreadsheet to move those numbers around. And and so I, I like to see sponsors that make fairly conservative assumptions so that they've got some downside uh, protection so that if things don't quite go quite to plan in one area. Uh, maybe in another area they're pretty, you know, they, they can make up for it. Let's say that, uh, renovations take longer than they expect. Maybe that's okay because rents are going up faster than they put in their underwriting. So that's number one is, is underwriting and assumptions. Number two is transparency. I really like to see sponsors who sh- are willing to share information. Uh, most sponsors are happy to give you as much information as you ask for. For example, the underwriting spreadsheet itself, that's a very complicated spreadsheet. Uh, a lot of investors don't you know, don't have the sophistication to really parse that spreadsheet. And that's okay. You know, it's, it takes some training and some practice to really understand what's in a, an underwriting spreadsheet, but sponsors who are willing to share that with people are, you know, I, I consider them more transparent and easier to do business with, you know, somebody that I can, I can develop a little more trust with. Um, So those are two big things is the underwriting assumptions and,
0: and the transparency. Do you have a um, a preference or a viewpoint on size of sponsor? So because I I as well am an LP in a fair number of deals and I've got you know I've got holdings with three guys with no infrastructure it's three partners they don't even have any employees yet and then I've got holdings with you know uh, a sponsor that owns over 20,000 units that's been in business for you know, thirty plus years and has sixty to eighty employees. Do you have a uh, a viewpoint on uh, you know the the value of one or another? Or are you fairly agnostic, or I mean, what, what's your sense of that? I've got no problem with investing
1: with a smaller sponsor. In fact, I'm kind of in the in the situation that you described with the that first batch. Lake Line Properties is me. I don't have any employees, um, but I partner up with folks. So, you know, I I, I make sure that. What skills I lack, I, I bring onto the team, just not as employees, just instead as as partners. And and I have no problem investing passively with, with people like me. I won't generally invest passively with somebody who's doing their first deal, but I will consider partnering up with them in some other way. You know, if I can, bring value to their team, let's say in, helping the capital raise or, uh, serving as a KP and in an in advisory capacity in some way. Uh, I've done deals with folks bringing the, uh, what, what's called the risk capital, which is earnest money deposits, legal fees, uh, loan fees. This is money that has to be spent before the team can raise capital and may be lost in the event that the deal falls through somehow. So that's why, that's why it's called a risk capital. And uh, usually the, whoever brings that risk capital will also get a piece of the deal. And so I'm, I'm happy to serve in that way. You know, I'm not going to invest with somebody that I don't trust, but if I know them and they're looking to break into the industry and we have a good relationship, I'm willing to work with them to figure out a way that, you know, we can pair up and, and uh, do deals together.
0: So give me a sense again of what the, the definition of risk capital and how much is it typically on a, on a deal?
1: Yeah, so, so again, risk capital would be the earnest money deposit to lock up a property in contract. Uh, it might be legal fees that you have to spend to, let's say, set up the syndication, let up the, set up the um, legal entities before you can begin raising capital. It can be loan fees that you have to pay to get the debt process started before the bank will even look at you. Those are the, the big ones that I usually see. Um, earnest money can range from a very small number to, let's say, 2% of the purchase price of an asset uh, or more, but usually I don't see things more than about that. So let's say on a, on a $15 million purchase, earnest money might be anywhere from 150,000 to 300,000. And that often will um, will be refundable for a period of time after the contract is signed, but become non-refundable during the course of the due diligence. Let's say after after a two or three week inspection period the buyers will, will be required to go hard on their money, which means that they, they have to commit. The earnest money becomes no longer refundable. So if the deal falls through somehow, that earnest money goes to the seller and then the seller puts the, the property back on the market. So so that earnest money, because of that, uh, becomes at risk. And so whoever puts up that earnest money stands to potentially lose it if the deal doesn't go through. So naturally, whoever's doing that is going to want to get really good visibility on on the deal. and. May you know may want some kind of control or at least a, a voice at the table, and that's why it's not unusual to give a part of the GP e- equity, and lists on, as uh, part of the GP team, the person or people who are providing the earnest money.
0: So, are you saying they are are officially and maybe this gets into definitions? If you're somebody that puts up that risk capital, that alone could qualify you as being part of the GP team, even if you do nothing else? Correct. Yep. You know what? That's why I do this podcast. I didn't know that, to be completely honest with you. Very interesting. Very, very, very interesting. And then here's a question. In terms of due diligence, how how do you get comfortable, especially in a market that's moving so quickly, how do you get comfortable with rent comps to to really be confident that your rent comps are accurate? Yeah, so that's that's
1: not that difficult. There's a lot of good sources of information. Um, CoStar, for example, makes it easy to find comparable properties. Um, And then you can can pretty easily verify the information. Um, You know, CoStar often will be a little bit out of date. Maybe they'll have data from six months ago. Uh, But it's not difficult to just make a few phone calls. Um, You know, you call the properties nearby and you say, um, hey, I'm I'm thinking about renting a place. What are you charging these days for a one-bedroom? Um, and you'll get all kinds of information, you know, they're, they're motivated to talk to people on the phone who are, in, uh, inquiring. And so it's, it's not especially difficult. It's just a little bit of grunt work to go through that process. So, um, you know, it's all, it's all part of the due diligence.
0: Do you ever go actually see those units in competitive buildings?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I often, uh, some people go out and they'll, they'll, they'll be very upfront. They'll say, Hey, I'm, I'm buying an asset in the neighborhood. What, you know, are you willing to tell me about this asset? And they have good results with that. So far, I haven't done that. Mostly I do uh, what you call secret shopping. So I'll go in and I'll say I'm a I'm a potential tenant. Uh, show me your units. You know, tell me what you got. Uh, tell me what your rates are. By doing that, um, I feel like I get a, not just the raw numbers, but also a, a sense of how the property is being operated. So I've done that not only on other neighboring properties, but I've done that on Properties I'm thinking about buying, I'll, I'll go to that property and I'll I'll do a secret shopper on that property, and that'll give me a sense of hey, is this is this management company somebody I'd want to keep around, and you know how are they how are they dealing with with people who are inquiring about uh, uh, renting there and so forth. So anyway, yeah, it's it's all about just uh, asking questions and getting information.
0: Got it. And, and are you, I guess, from a strategy perspective, trying to identify a certain class uh, of property? Are you agnostic and what markets and this kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So I'd like to stay in neighborhoods that you might call C, C plus or better, preferably B minus to B. So neighborhoods where the median income maybe is 45K and up. Uh, median income in a neighborhood is going to be a strong driver of the kind of rents you can get. Uh, rule of thumb is take the median income and divide by three. And that's where your rents ought to be. Um, but that's the kind of neighborhood I like is um, working class or better. Uh, and then as far as properties, I prefer to stay 1980s or newer. I make exceptions, but you know those are the properties I prefer. Because when you get from 1980 to 2000, that's a nice sweet spot where You can find properties that are a little bit um, uh, dated. You know, they haven't been updated. Uh, You can do some cosmetic renovations and really make the place shine and improve the the rents. Uh, But because they aren't that old, you know, 1980s is 40 years old, that's that's not that old from a building perspective. You don't typically have really uh, critical infrastructure problems like, um, you know, major plumbing repairs or, foundation issues or that kind of thing. So so that's a really nice sweet spot for me is 80, 1980
0: to 2000. And what what would you say are some of the bigger lessons you've learned You know, going out and, and being a, a sponsor on your own?
1: Hmm. I think the biggest lesson is, is be ready to partner up. That's how I've gotten, in fact, that's how I've gotten into all my deals is uh, the deals that I've been in, my partners have actually found the deals and then brought me in. And and so I'm I, I've done my own scouting for deals, but I've never actually consummated one of those deals where I found the property, got in a contract and uh, you know carried through. It's all been somebody else finds the property and then says, hey, Joel, you want to be part of this deal? And that's worked really well for me. So for me, partnering is, is what it's all about. My partners have been fantastic uh, and I've and I've paired up with different combinations of people. I've I've, I've got uh, one. Uh, One set of partners that I do, I've I've done several land deals with. We're doing ground-up development now. And a different set of partners that I've done several deals in Austin on uh, value-add multifamily. Another set of partners where I've done a couple things in Houston. So really, that's been the, the, the one key lesson for me is partnering up.
0: Is there a key role that you find yourself playing in the bulk of these deals, which is the reason you're bringing in? Is it a couple few key roles or is it different on each deal? Why are they bringing you in? What are they augmenting that they don't have by bringing you in?
1: My role tends to be a little bit front loaded in the sense that I'm helping a lot on the transaction to help the deal get done. And then I tend to be a little bit less than the dry receipt once we've bought the property and we're managing the asset so i'm very heavy and strong on things like a risk capital uh, i bring net worth i work with the bank on the debt work with the the broker and the and the seller sometimes on on the purchase uh, just kind of generally helping the transaction move forward i've also got a fairly strong resume now uh, early on, my, my real estate resume wasn't that strong, but my overall resume, my experience um, helped a lot just because uh, I had more experience in general and in investing than my partners. So, again, that was all kind of upfront, you know, helping the transaction uh, come to fruition. Once we close on the property in the deals that I'm in, by and large, I'm not driving the asset management. I'm helping with the asset management, I'm participating in the weekly calls. I'm reviewing information as it's coming back from the property manager and providing feedback on, you know, where we ought to go with our renovation strategy or what we should do about the delinquencies on a property. But my partners, by and large, are doing the day-to-day dealing with the property manager, dealing with the delinquencies and so forth. So and that's that's a nice combination for me because that allows me to focus very heavily on deals as they're brewing and as we're bringing them to closure. Once they close, my time commitment is much less. And so I can then move on and do another deal. So it allows me to scale in that way by doing lots of deals and having a lesser role in the deals once they're they're consummated.
0: I get it, man. That sounds like an attractive uh, role, to tell you the truth. So again, for, for the uninitiated, which I'll you know, I'll include myself in the uninitiative. When you help on the transaction, okay, and, and you may feel as though I'm asking you to repeat yourself and I don't intend to to, I just really want uber clarification. What is it about the transaction specifically that you do play a role in? You know, you've got a, you know, you're, you're dealing with a broker and seller. What are the things that come up where you add value there or provide value that your partners really, they might not have the experience to deal with?
1: So that's going to vary from one deal to the next. Um, sometimes it has to do with the business strategy. Uh, sometimes it's helping to communicate with potential investors on, you know, what what it is we're trying to do, and why the returns are desirable. Uh, Sometimes it's structuring the deal in a way that makes sense for investors. You know, I've helped to figure out how we want to position a multiple share class entity where, you know, we have some some investors who want to come in getting only a preferred return, but no equity upside. Uh, The advantage there is they get paid first, and then another share class where, it's a smaller pre- preferred return or maybe no preferred return, but they get lots of equity upside, so they're willing to take a bigger bet on success. And so structuring that and, and figuring out how to navigate that with the syndication attorney and uh, how to communicate that to our investors, that's a way I can add value. Um, connecting with the bank and helping, helping the bank understand what we're planning to do with the property and how that makes sense and how collectively as a team we've got the experience and the chops to get it done and then of course you know bringing the net worth and and the uh the risk capital um you know those those are all about the numbers
0: so it sounds like you're kind of like the adult in the room is what you're describing which isn't which isn't to demean your partners, but that that's kind of what I'm hearing in a way that you're you're kind of a more experienced guy. Maybe you're a little bit older. Take no offense, because so am I. Um, but that that's kind of what I'm getting. You have more business experience. You've got more liquidity. Just a little bit more established and and have more experience. Is that would you say that's true?
1: Yeah, I mean we're we're only on audio, so your audience can't see this, but yeah, I'm I'm the guy with the gray hair. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, you know, look, look, the, the little hair I have on the sides is gray. Uh, so, so my audience, yeah, they, they can't see that either. Well, you know what? Uh, this has uh, been a fantastic conversation as far as I'm concerned. I'm so impressed what you've done and, uh, and are doing. Joel, how would one get a hold of you?
1: Yeah. So people can uh, go to my website. It's lakelineproperties.com, L-A-K-E-L-I-N-E, properties.com there's a contact form there or they're welcome to email me directly joel at lake, lakelineproperties.com always happy to talk to folks who are interested in investing in one of these deals or interested in getting into syndication and is looking for some advice in fact on on my website i've got uh, a list of books and podcasts that i recommend i keep that list pretty curated and up to date so you know i've probably i've probably read about 50 or 60 books and listened to you know dozens and dozens of different podcasts and the ones that i really like and, and i think add could add value to people who are looking to get into the business i put on that list so if you go to my website lakelineproperties.com and click on i think i called it educational content you can see that list and uh, you know decide which of those books or podcasts
0: might be of interest got it fantastic well i very very much appreciate it and look forward to being in contact with you as you continue to grow
1: Thanks so much for having
0: me on, Roger. You got it. All right, Joe. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye.